Please turn in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. We are continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves this morning uh, looking at verse 13 through 17 of chapter 12. Uh, As I've been saying over the last few weeks, uh, ever since the cleansing of the temple back in chapter 11, uh, really what served as a public indictment on the leaders in Israel, uh, we have seen really uh, over the last couple of weeks and what will go on through the remainder of chapter 12, a battle of authorities, uh, the battle of Jesus' authority uh, versus the authority of the leaders in Israel. Uh, So with that introduction out of the way, let us now give attention uh, to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. And they sent some of them of the and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we know that we cannot understand your word in the deep recesses of our heart as you call us to do, lest your spirit come. So we pray now, Father, that your spirit would meet us as we learn from this your word, not man's word, but God's word that your spirit would work in concert with the reading and preaching of it to stir us up for yourself and for your glory and the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, We have seen over the last few weeks, as I've already mentioned, what I've been calling a battle of authority, uh, a battle between Christ's authority and the authorities of the leaders in Israel. Uh, Last week, you will recall, we saw Jesus ultimately condemned the leaders in Israel uh, when he gave a parable of the vineyard, which really alluded, as we saw last week, to uh, the parable that is given in Isaiah 5. However, we marked a distinct difference between Jesus' parable and that parable in Isaiah 5. In Isaiah 5, judgment fell on the vineyard itself, being the people of Israel itself. But Jesus, last week, as we saw in his parable, was turning that on its head and was actually bringing judgment upon the leaders within Israel. And that ultimate judgment upon the leaders will come as Jesus foreshadows in that parable for the first time, at least to his enemies, uh, that they are going to be the reason he will die on the cross. And that will be the reason, ultimately, uh, for their judgment. And we are told last week uh, by Mark that the chief priests, scribes, and elders that are listening to this parable that Jesus gave last week in the first 12 verses of chapter 12, that in verse 12, at the very end of that passage, uh, they perceived that Jesus was speaking 
about them. Uh, And they wanted to arrest him, but again, they feared the people. Uh, If they arrest Jesus, uh, the people will be in an uproar because they are captivated by Jesus and his teachings. And so what these leaders really must do is turn the people against Jesus. And that is what we see here in verse 13 through 17. These leaders are going to try and turn these people against Jesus so that they can bring a charge against Jesus and ultimately bring him before the authorities. Verse 13, the chief priests, scribes, and elders send some Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus. Now, what is so fascinating about this is that the Herodians and the Pharisees are actually working together as a team here. Uh, The Pharisees and the Herodians actually hated each other. They loathed each other. The Herodians were seen by the Pharisees to be compromisers with Rome and really in opposition to the purity of God's holy law. Herodians were followers of King Herod, that king that we met a few weeks back in chapter 6, who was responsible for the death of John the Baptist. King Herod, who was really, as we will see later, just a puppet king, a king within Judea who was really just an arm of Caesar. Uh, So the Herodians were really seen as compromisers with Rome, as a puppet of the pagan state of Rome. And so Pharisees who who saw themselves as purists saw the Herodians as those that compromised the promises and the scriptures of the Old Testament. Yet nevertheless, what we see here is that the two come together in order to test Jesus. These otherwise enemies now become uh, friends and they become comrades in their ability to trip Jesus up. In his words, verse 14, the Pharisees and Herodians try to butter up Jesus by saying to him, we know you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Tell us, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, what we need to recognize here is the trap that the Herodians and the Pharisees are setting for Jesus, And it's actually quite an ingenious trap that they are setting for Jesus. If Jesus says yes to this question, that they are to pay taxes to Caesar, then he is going to be accused of turning his back on Israel and saying we should pay taxes to a pagan king, to a pagan Caesar. Taxers rendered unto Caesar served as a constant reminder of Israel's subjugation of a pagan Rome. And the purest, most religious Hebrews refused to pay the tax out of nationalistic loyalty. So if you were a pure Hebrew, truly holding on to the promises of God, you would not pay taxes to a pagan Caesar. So really, So if he says yes, he's in trouble with the Pharisees. He's going to be accused of not being a pure Israelite, of not holding to the promises given to Israel by God. However, if Jesus says no, the Herodians will run to Herod, who, as we have already said, is an arm of Caesar, and they will accuse Jesus of sedition. So you see the trap that they have set. They have essentially put Jesus in what seems to be a no-win situation. 
Now, you can imagine the crowd as they're listening to this. Remember, they have been captivated by Jesus this whole time, and here they are with this question, this trap that the Herodians and the Pharisees bring to him. You can just imagine they're whispering to themselves, how is he going to get himself out of this one? How is he going to answer this question from these leaders? Well, verse 15, we see how Jesus responds. Jesus recognizes that these Herodians and Pharisees are less than sincere in their words and in their question. He says, why put me to the test? Now, that word to test is a very interesting word throughout the Gospel of Mark. It is a verb that Mark will often use throughout the Gospel in connection to Jesus' opposition to the Pharisees, Herodians, and the rest. However, the very first time this word is used in this Gospel is in chapter 1, verse 13. And it's used of Satan when Satan tempts or tests Jesus in the desert. The initial test in the Gospel of Mark comes from Satan. And all subsequent tests and temptations from Jesus' opponents are to be seen as tests and temptations, ultimately from the evil one, Satan. These Pharisees and these Herodians are agents of Satan. The Pharisees and Herodians are, as Jesus will say in John 8, sons of the devil, their father the devil, and they carry out the desires of the devil. And Satan will often use disparate people, people who are otherwise enemies who hate each other and bring them together to try to take down Jesus. And we can guarantee Satan is still doing the very same thing today for those who follow Christ, taking those who otherwise hate each other, but uniting them as they seek to take down Christ and his church. Jesus says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now, the denarius was a common Roman coin that was worth about a day's labor. Jesus, upon seeing the coin, asks the question, whose image and inscription is this? And they answer him, Caesar's. Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. At this response, the Herodians and the Pharisees marvel at the answer of Jesus. Yet again, they have been outwitted by Christ. Now, I don't know if you are like me who read this passage a few years back and you look at this response to Jesus and then you see the response of the Pharisees and the Herodians and you say to yourself, really? They marveled at that response from Jesus? Isn't he really just in a long-winded, fancy way essentially saying yes to the question? Why do they marvel at this answer from Jesus? Why is this answer from Jesus just oozing and seeping with wisdom? Well, what I want to do for the remainder of our time this morning is really just look at three reasons this response from Jesus is one that all of us should marvel at. And first reason is, it is a word of condemnation against the Herodians. It is a word of condemnation against the Herodians. In Jesus' response, notice he separates obligation to Caesar and obligation to God. 
This serves as a word of condemnation against the Herodians. The Herodians were followers of the household of Herod. Uh, King Herod, who was a Jewish ruler over the territories of Galilee and Perea. And Herod, while being outwardly orthodox in his Judaism, really was in many ways, as I've already stated, an arm of Caesar. He ruled under the reign of Caesar and was really a puppet of Caesar in the, in the territory of Galilee and Perea. In fact, the largest city in Galilee, Tiberias, was built by Herod in honor of the second Roman emperor, Tiberius. And he built other cities as well in honor of Roman authorities. So the reign of Herod and his success was very much closely tied to the success of Rome itself. So that God blessed his people through Herod, who was really sort of a mini Caesar, doing the work of Caesar, so that what you ended up having was sort of this blending of the promises of God with Caesar's rule, represented by Herod. God would bring restoration, according to the Herodians, God would bring restoration to Israel through the Herodian dynasty that had become in many ways an arm of the pagan state of Rome. So a Herodian response from Jesus that might have pleased the ears of the Herodian might look like something like this. Render unto God by rendering unto Caesar. Through rendering unto Caesar, you are therefore rendering unto God. But Jesus here rather separates the two. The state is not God. God's special blessing for his people does not come through the state. It is, of course, always a temptation, especially when the state and ruling authorities bring many material blessings, to start to mix and blend the special blessings of God given through his word with the state that has materially blessed you. Really, we see it throughout church history, really beginning with Constantine in the 4th century when he started to mix Christianity with politics. And it runs throughout the Middle Ages all the way through the Reformation. Church and state being mixed so that God's special blessing to his people at the end of the day starts to be seen given through the state. We see it in our own country today, don't we? Anytime something bad happens in this country, you really won't find any shortage of people that will say, well, Christ must be coming back anytime now. Because after all, if America falls, God must be done with the world. Essentially tying all of God's blessings to the blessings of America, the blessings of this country. Now, certainly, certainly, We look at the history of this country and we see many, many blessings. And God is a God from whom all blessings flow and we should thank him and praise him for those blessings. We are able to see the forefathers and the constitution and we are able to marvel at it. I do. Believe me, I am passionate about the constitution here and even see in many ways many biblical principles embedded in it. But we should never, 
mix God's common grace given through state governance with God's special grace given through his governance of the church. The president of the United States, no matter who he or she is, does not administer God's means of grace. Congress does not administer the sacraments. They do not read and preach the word, and they do not practice church discipline. These are rules and reigns that are really essentially temporal. They are not eternal. And Jesus never, ever promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Rather, he promises that the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. So that whether America is here for another day or thousand years, Christ will begin, will continue to protect and guard his church that he has promised the gates of hell will never prevail against. So we see with the Herodians that common thing that we still see today and we've seen throughout church history, a blending of material blessings from state governance with the special grace and blessings that God gives through his church and through the head of his church, Jesus Christ. Second, the reason this is such a statement to marvel at from Jesus is that it is a word of condemnation against the Pharisees. It is a word of condemnation against the Pharisees. Now, while we see against the Herodians, Jesus separates the rendering unto Caesar and the rendering unto God. He nevertheless says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. This is and serves really as a word of condemnation against the Pharisees who are ready to pounce if Jesus says it is okay to pay tribute to Rome. He would be be denying God's special care for Israel. He would therefore be denying God's special care for his people. But the Pharisees, really just like the Herodians, are the same, only in the opposite direction, aren't they? They were mixing temporal blessings with eternal ones. They had made the same mistake the Herodians had made. They tied temporal rule and reign to God's eternal rule and reign. But the man who is devoted to God, we learn here, does not make the issue of his political freedom the number one priority in his life. The Pharisees have come to the false conclusion that obedience to the temporal ruling authorities cannot be reconciled to obedience to God. Yet Jesus' answer shows us the reconciling of the two. Render unto Caesar his due as your temporal authority and render unto God his due as your eternal authority. And those two don't have to contradict each other. They can be reconciled. Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Paul says these words, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 
Now, what is so ironic about that statement from Paul there in Romans 13 is that at the time of that writing, Nero was most likely the emperor, and Nero was no friend of Christianity. Because of a great fire that went through Rome, he ended up blaming all the Christians for that fire to save his own skin. And what resulted was a massive persecution and killing of Christians, where they would be lit up literally like candles in the street. And according to tradition, Paul himself would be killed and executed by Nero. Yet Paul sees no contradiction in rendering unto Nero what is Nero's and to God what is God's. Now, of course, there is one very, very important caveat, perhaps the elephant in the room. You probably are thinking along the lines with me. Whenever the state commands us to do that which is against God and his word, we are to do as Peter says to the Jewish authorities in Acts 5, obey God rather than men. Whenever the state seeks to bind the conscience of Christians outside of God's word, we are to render unto God what is God's and cease to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and face the consequences for it even if it is death itself. However, so long as the state upholds law and order, as long as the state, as Paul will say in Romans 13, is a terror to evil and a promoter of good, we are to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. There is no contradiction between obedience to God and obedience to man. In fact, it's interesting, in Romans 13, Paul will even go so far as to say that those authorities that uphold law and order are God's servant for our good, for our protection. So we are to render unto Caesar our temporal authority, what is Caesar's, so long as they do what they have been called to do and be a terror to evil and uphold law and order. So Jesus against the Herodians separates Caesar from God. Against the Pharisees, he upholds Caesar and his rightful rule over its citizens. And third and finally, the reason that this is such an amazing statement from Jesus is his use of the word image. His use of the word image. He asks the question, Whose image, perhaps in your translation, you have likeness. Whose image, whose likeness is on this coin? Now, it's interesting, the word image or likeness here uh, oftentimes marked someone's authority. It marked ownership. And so this image on this coin being Caesar's marks the fact that the coin was stamped with Caesar's image meaning that the coin belonged to Caesar. The coin bearing the image of Caesar marks that coin as being Caesar's. But the Pharisees and the Herodians themselves, along with all of mankind and every single one of us in this room, bear the mark of God being made in his image. Therefore, while the coin, that insignificant hunk of metal, belongs to Caesar. Us and our whole lives belong to God. 
We read earlier from Genesis 1 where God creates man in his image. And what is interesting about the Hebrew word there for image is that it was most often used in reference to a king that would come into a piece of land that he has conquered and he would set up images of himself throughout that conquered land, often in the form of statues. And what that image, that statue would show the people, the conquered people, was that he was the sovereign ruler over that conquered nation. Man created in the image of God was to be a mark of God's sovereign rule and reign over his creation. And men and women were commanded to produce offspring, little image bearers that would flood the creation as marks of God's sovereign rule over all that he has made. It is why man and not animals are given dominion over God's creation because they are created in God's image and in his likeness. And their dominion and their rule and their reign was to point to the dominion and the rule and the reign of God the creator himself. Yet what do we have with the Pharisees and the Herodians? They have cheapened God's rule over their lives. They have cheapened their own image and the image of their followers as well. God has become only as big as the state itself. Insignificant temporal currency is determining man's commitment to God and God's commitment to man. They have diminished God, and they have diminished his image as well. Really, it's similar to what Paul will say in Romans chapter 14, verse 17. He says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God, Paul could easily say to these Pharisees and Herodians, is not a matter of what currency you use. It's not a matter of who is on the temporal throne. It is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is showing that we are able to serve God as his image bearers, no matter who is in power. Whatever faces are on the currency or statues in the land that we call home does not determine, brothers and sisters, how we live for God as his image bearers. In Berlin, Berlin, Germany, there is a museum called the Pergamon Museum where there is this ancient statue of Caesar Augustus that was found in the Greek ancient city of Pergamon, one of many statues that Caesar Augustus had put throughout the empire. And on the statue, there is a breastplate uh, that gives all the names of the nations that Caesar Augustus had conquered. And also on that breastplate, uh, there is in Latin a, a title that Caesar Augustus gave to himself, Divi Filios which translates to son of God. 
However, you will also find on that image a certain graffiti mark that someone had placed alongside of that title, Divi Filios, and is the graffiti mark and symbol of the cross, showing that Jesus Christ and not Caesar was in fact the Son of God. Caesar Augustus placed statues of himself, images of himself throughout the then known world in order to demonstrate his rule and reign. And he did it all thinking that he was the son of God. Yet he nor any other temporal ruler and reigner is the son of God. Christ and Christ alone is the son of God. And God, by conforming people from every tribe, nation, and tongue into his image, is setting up statues that point to his sovereign rule over his creation. Brothers and sisters, united to Christ by faith now, we become marks of God's conquering work over Satan and this fallen world. And our lives are not to point to the dominion of any man-made kingdom. They are to point to the dominion of God that he has brought in and through Jesus Christ. Praise be to God that he has reshaped us, reoriented us, given us a new image as we are conformed into the image of Christ, and we become symbols of his conquering work over evil. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we marvel at such a story as this the grand redemptive story that weaves throughout your pages of Scripture, that you at first had created man in your image so that we would be marks of your sovereign rule and reign over all that you have created. Yet we have fallen in sin, but thanks be to God you have sent your Son, poured out your Spirit into our hearts, So that as we are conformed into his image, as people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, from all four corners of this earth are conformed to the image of Christ, you bring marks and statues of your sovereign rule and renewing of all things. Father, give us this grand truth. Hide it into our hearts so that we would walk upright and seek to live out the calling you have placed on us in and through our King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.